0: Well, friends, just a friendly reminder before I launch into the sermon, it's only nine days, shopping days, till Valentine's, just in case you're wondering. There's still lots of candy out there and great cards. You know, if you go on Valentine's Day morning, there's never any cards left, okay, for the ones you really would want, any where they're left over. So shop early, and only 322 shopping days till Christmas, just those of that are logging that, you know, just so you have an idea about that. But well, we're beginning a new sermon series today based on C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. And as was illustrated through that video, we have one word in the English language, love, that covers a wide range of aspects of what that means. For instance, we heard people say, I love chocolate, or I love the White Sox, or love the Cubs, or I love sunsets, or somewhere in there is I love my wife, and I love my family, and I love my church, and I love this and that. So we use the same word, but in the Greek language, and C.S. Lewis points this out to us, there are four different words in Greek that talk about the various aspects of love. The first of those is this word storge. We're going to talk about that quite a bit today, which is primarily family relationship, but it's really affection. It's that sense of connectivity with others. The second Greek word he's going to highlight in in this series that's in the book is philia, or phileo is the verbal form of that, is friendship, the love of a good friend. The third word is eros, which is romantic love, and I thank the Lord I don't have that topic. I'll be honest with you. That's going to be a fun one. Uh, And then agape, or agape, which is the unconditional love of God, which God just loves us because he loves us no matter what. And C.S. Lewis characterizes that word with charity in the British language. We think of charity as giving things to the poor, helping others, but this is the word he translates out of the King James Version and uses to talk about love. We're going to talk about this stoga because it is a centerpiece of our lives. We are all born into a family, Every relationship that we come to have out of our lives is formative, but the ones in our family life are the most important. Storge is that kind of natural love that a mother feels for her newborn child, the instant that child is born. And I was in the room when my daughter Julie was born, and there was this bond that just happened. I, you know, I, It was such a wonderful, great, great feeling to have that. It was built into me. I didn't even know it was there in that great way. It's also the love that a child feels back for their mother, initially, especially as they're nursing. There's a bond that happens. There's a a need that that child has for the mother, and there's just this feeling that's special. There's a mutual bond that happens. And it's actually the love that you feel towards any family member, even when you don't like the person sometimes, because family love can sometimes get a little complicated, right? Just, Just a little bit. And we find ourselves loving somebody and also disliking some things that they're doing at the same time. It gets very difficult. We're going to talk about that a little bit more as we go forward here. Sometimes you can describe storge love as a love that sometimes you wish you didn't have or didn't know that you have. It's a complicated thing that sometimes makes life challenging. It can also be the kind of affection you feel for the person you see walking their dog down your street every day. And you just say hello to them. They're a familiar part of your life, and you're like, if they don't show up, you're like, what happened? They're not there anymore. Or the feeling you have towards your barista at Starbucks or wherever you get your coffee every morning, and just you have this little hello, and you're nice to see each other, and you might have a little pleasantries, but there's an affection. There's a slight little bond there. It also can extend to our pets. And I am the biggest dog lover in the world, and probably equal to some of the rest of you to love dogs. And I love cats, too, but both me and my wife are allergic to them, so they've never, we never have one in our house. But when we were... Married for a number of years, my daughter was 12, my son was 6, we decided to get a dog. And I I was like, great, we're going to get a dog. I'm thinking a big Labrador retriever, some big dog that I can wrestle with and, you know, have fun with. And we settled on, because my wife kind of liked this, the Schnoodle. The Schnoodle is a Schnauzer poodle mix. We named her Lacey, about a 12-pound little fuzzball, which was just a wonderful animal. This dog, from day one, I trained her, house trained her in one day. Okay, this is a smart animal. She never chewed anything in the house. I taught her all the tricks to lie down and sit and shake hands and to speak and do all the stuff that regular dogs do. But this dog was smarter, so I taught her to wave to people. So when people came to the house, or I'd hold her, and then I'd say, Wave, Lacey, and she'd wave with her paws, you know, that kind of thing. And I also told her to speak, a little differently. I taught her at least one word she got down, and that was mama. I'd say, say mama, Lacey, and she'd go, Ruh, rah. I mean, she got it. Okay, this is a smart dog. I loved Lacey. She was a fur-covered little person that I came home to every day, and that we all we loved her. Then about a year later, because we loved her so much with that storge love, that we decided to get a second dog. And it was a cute little fuzzy Bichon, you know, poodle mix, and oh, what an affectionate little animal, but that's where the fun ended. As good as Lacey was, Riley was bad. There was just some wiring in there that just wasn't right at this. She's going to do something. If something wrong could be happening, she would do it, okay? We had our godchild over. Uh, first time, we were babysitting for an infant. We're talking a little, and do- dogs have the instinct to protect children, right? We had this dog near her. Her the, 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 goddaughter was there, and Riley attacked, okay? Tried to, I had to dive in the way to stop her from attacking the worst of the worst, we had a kitchen set in that house for years. Riley just chewed it. She just chewed the legs on the chair, chewed the base. This was an Ethan Allen, you know, really nice kitchen set. We put up with it long enough. Finally, we said, okay, we're going to get a new, we think she's done with it, we're going to get a new kitchen set. So we went out, shopped around, and, you know, furniture's expensive. I mean, it's scary expensive. So we got this nice new set. It wasn't in our house for more than three hours until little Riley, who's this big, had jumped up on both ends of the table and clawed deep, claw marks on both ends of this brand new table. So, this Dorgay love was interfered with, she was cute and lovable, but there was a lot of other stuff she did that made it hard for us. Um, The problem with that is, that happens with humans, too, sometimes. We have this warm, fuzzy experience, and then something happens. In family, you can say blood is thicker than water. We always are going to stick together. And the way Robert Frost put it about family love is, home is where when you have to go there, they have to let you in. There's this kind of, there's something about family love. But C.S. Lewis would say this of Storgate. He would say it's the humblest of loves because it doesn't discriminate. It ignores gender, class, race, and education. And he further defines it specifically in the book, saying, Storge would best be described as affection, the humblest and most widely diffused of love. It applies to so many different areas of our life. And he goes on to say, it's responsible for nine-tenths of whatever solid and durable happiness there is in our natural lives. So 90% of our experience of happiness is going to come from Storge love, this affection we have and we feel and we receive from others. So it's really important we get a handle and understand this here today. For some of us, life can be a never-ending struggle, though, of trying to prove ourselves worthy of being liked or loved, worthy of earning someone's affection, earning someone's approval. We struggle through that so often, even in family settings. But God's design for family wasn't meant to be that way. The family was supposed to be that safe place, that place where you were loved and accepted and believed in and, and shaped and prepared for life in this world. The word that is translated in love in Romans chapter 12 is a compound word that I read a few moments ago where it says to practice brotherly affection. It's a compound word combining phileo, philia, and storge where it says be deeply, tenderly bound to one another, not just in your families, but also in the body of Christ as well. If you think about this, the first place where someone feels value is when someone accepts them and shares that affection with them. Our sense of self-esteem is based upon how we are treated throughout our whole lives. And it's an important thing to understand that this storge love, this natural affection, is how God hardwired us. It's our natural inclination to express affection and love, especially to family. There's other forms of love that get interfered with that and other complications that come in, but this is so foundational. Every moment of every day, there's somebody in our frame of reference where storge love can be expressed to. But what happens? That's all great stuff, right? If we bond to people when we're loving them and been loved by them, but when we're not, when their flaws or ours interfere with the natural flow of that love, then we can become disconnected because we withdraw from people who hurt us naturally, right? We feel, wait, I I don't understand why you're doing that to me. So, storge, this kind of affection is a natural choice that we have to express and to share with others around us, but we also have the choice to withhold it or withdraw it. And when we do that, we're fighting against a natural drive that God has put within us and also fighting ourselves. But it happens, doesn't it? What was once a sweet, fulfilling, mutually satisfying relationship can break down into one that's painful, frustrating, confusing, and confounding. We still love a person, but we can't find a way to bridge the gap. We can't find a way to get back to that place where we can openly and freely share that kind of affection. And if we allow that kind of dissonance to occur and stay for a long time, then it mounts up inside of us. The offenses start mounting up, and instead of affectionately reaching out and forgiving, they start to build up inside of us. So we're naturally created by God to express love in all of our life relationships, and allow that to flow through us. But it gets dammed up within us, like the beaver builds a dam on a river. um, It dams up inside of us, and it starts to bring a different set of emotions that Dr. H. Norman Wright captures when we have the loss of relationship. And there's a graphic I'm going to point your attention to, I hope you can see it on the screen, where we get so tangled up inside. Oh, that's kind of small. You're not going to see what's up there. I'll read what's on there to you. where instead of feeling love and affection and kindness and gentleness and peacefulness and joy, we start to just feel predominantly disappointment and hurt, fear and pain, and maybe rage down inside someplace. Feelings of abandonment start to occupy our inner selves. And maybe even then panic or confusion or anxiety start to mount up. Helplessness overcomes us. A deep sense of emptiness, sadness, and ultimately if these things get so tangled up, we can become bitter on the inside. Where there was once sweetness, where there was once affection, now we've become bitter. Where people don't want to talk to us, or we don't want to talk to that person, and we just kind of leave it that way because we can't see a path back. But I believe that there's three things that create this inner hardening of the emotional arteries. You know, when our hearts, our physical hearts, start to harden the arteries, they have to sometimes go in and replace the the, the veins or the arteries that are there are put stents in to open up the flow so the blood can flow in and bring life-giving oxygen. Sometimes we have blocked up on the inside our emotional arteries. And there's three things, I think, that do that in a significant way. Number one is this thing called pride. Secondly is unforgiveness. And thirdly is fear. These are the predominant emotions and mindsets that block that flow of natural love that comes through us. Pride says things like this. Well, I'm right and she's wrong. Or, he started this, so it's all his fault. Or, I'm the parent, and I'm right all the time. You ever tried that one on your kids? It sort of works. Not really, though. doesn't exactly engender a whole lot of mutual affection there. Unforgiveness says, I'm going to punish you for hurting or wrongdoing to me, your wrongdoing to me, and teach you a lesson. It goes on to say, for instance, things like, you know what? I'm just going to begin to write you out of the script in my life. Fear also says, I can't risk being hurt again. I can't take any more pain. I know he will only be mean to me, so I'm just going to protect myself and back away from this relationship. We allow those things to build up. We start to build up what happens inside of us is our experience of life changes. Our experience of people changes. Relationships become paranoid and afraid to enter into them. You see, we withdraw our love due to resentment. We withhold our love due to fear. And we hold on to grudges due to unforgiveness. That's a painful state to be in. But friends, there is a cure. These things can be like physical issues with the heart can be reversed in most cases. We can untangle these emotional knots. Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul says these words to us that help us in that direction. Verse 12 and following in Colossians 3 says this, Since God chose you to be holy, the holy people he loves... You must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then this key verse. If you don't remember anything else that I say here this morning, I want you to remember this verse. Colossians 3, verse 13. Make allowance for others' faults. I'll come back to that in a minute. And forgive anyone who offends you. Just remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others' And above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. I want to process that a little bit with you. Make allowance for people's faults. It's kind of like guess what? We're filled with a world full of flawed people, and you're one of them too. You know, we make allowance for a lot of things. You might save a rainy day fund. You might save money for a vacation. You might budget something for something that you can do. You might be setting up uh, different aspects of your retirement. So you you make allowance for things that you expect to happen, and you have kind of that that buffer in there in case case things don't work out the, the way we do. Sometimes we don't have that buffer in our relationship. We sort of, some way, shape, or form, start to expect perfection out of people that aren't perfect. We expect people to treat us in a way that maybe they are doing the best they can and that's the best they can do right now, but we're expecting more from them. And so when our expectations of them, with no allowance for their faults, aren't met, then we get wounded and hurt and we tend to back away. So learning to make allowance for people's faults, and it'd be not right now if you're sitting next to your spouse or somebody you know, write them down, don't do that. Don't tell them about their faults. Make allowance that they're going to be there and let the love that God's given to you overcome them. If we factor that into our everyday life, it's going to make it so much easier to forgive on a daily basis. You see, a soft and tender heart, if we keep our heart soft, allows all the emotions of love and all the actions of love to continue to flow in our lives. In fact, the scripture says to us, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Not one time. Okay? And his mercies are new every morning to give people a fresh start every single day. But when we hold this back, it Creates possibility of us having a hardened heart altogether. Now, the opposite of storge is astorge or astorgos in the New Testament. Twice it's mentioned. Paul mentions it in Second Timothy chapter three, where he says, "In the last days, things are going to get really messy, and people are going to become hard-hearted or heartless. They're going to lose the nerve for feeling." Jesus said it this way: "Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of many is going to grow cold." There's a lot going on in our world that challenges us all. And we need to be careful not to let our hearts become hard. Because if we do so, that will limit our experience of God's goodness and his benefits in our life. So how do we cure this? How do we do this? To reopen the channels for the storge kind of love. Number one, the opposite of pride is this thing called humility. The opposite of unforgiveness is mercy, as I've mentioned. And the opposite of fear is courage. Courage. Being willing to go forward and tread some places, maybe we've been afraid of going relationally. Edward Lewis put it so well, we need to define ourselves by the best that is in us, meaning how God has wired us and his very presence in us, not the worst that has been done to us. I'm going to say that again. We need to define ourselves by the best that is inside of us, our best capacities, not by the worst that other people have done to us from the outside. So I'm going to suggest that there's at least 10, but I'm going to suggest 10 ways that we can do heart therapy emotionally and spiritually to get that love flowing again. About a year and a half ago, about 15, 16 months ago, I injured my back. Some of you have been praying for me, and I stand here today a healed person, okay? But it didn't happen, the healing didn't happen day one. I got connected with a great doctor, Dr. Philip Klaassen here in Oak Brook, and he put me to work with tons of exercises and tons of things to do, and I thought he was crazy at first. I was like, i got so much pain in my back, I can't do that stuff. He's like, get over there. He was a coach kind of a guy. But over the course of time, by applying the things he suggested to me, I'm standing here pain-free for the first time in many, many, many months. The same thing with our inner selves. We get tangled up over a long period of time sometimes, and relationships get that way and grow cold, and they need some steps to come back to that. So I'm going to suggest about 10 ways that we can live out love in a, a fresh way. The first of which is to be the first to apologize without excuse. Not the kind of apology that says, well, I'm sorry, but it's because you did all these things that I, you made me upset. No, that's, that's an excuse. You're blaming the other person. Apologizing without excuse to somebody means, I was wrong for what I did and what I said, and, and I am really genuinely sorry Period. No more. It's been said, and I wish I'd said this, but the first to apologize is the bravest. There's that courage. The first to forgive is the strongest. And the first to forget is the happiest. The second step in this therapy of the heart is to listen without interrupting. Comes right out of Proverbs. So we're all really good at speaking, aren't we? But listening is a skill, it's a learned skill. you have to practice in your thinking, I'm just not going to blurt out the first thing that comes to my mind to defend myself when the person accuses me, to explain myself when the person's talking about me in a way that I don't like. Learning to listen means being quiet. Actually considering what the other person is saying. You just might find out they have a valid point or two in there, despite how wrong you think they are, if it's a challenged relationship, to actually listen to what their heart is saying, because deep down inside, they love you. God wired them to love you if he put you in a relationship with them. And they're trying to figure the same thing out that you're trying to figure out. Thirdly, is when we do speak, is to speak without accusing, to use our words carefully. This is really hard especially when we're in the mindset of defending ourselves and justifying ourselves, and we've been rehearsing all this stuff in in our minds for days or weeks or months if we haven't had a good conversation with somebody to resolve something, is to use your words carefully without finding fault in the other person, without accusing them. Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, which means a filter. We have to think ahead, what am I going to say? And then he qualifies the kind of words that need to come out of our mouths as Christ followers, is except for words that will build up the other person. This is so counterintuitive. When you want to correct them and point out what they did wrong and how they should have done things differently is to do something that actually makes them feel better about who they are, that builds, actually builds them up. It's the opposite. Some way to build somebody up. Now, we'll get to speaking the truth in love in a minute, but that's an important step, is to use your words to build someone up. You know what happens when you do that? They're attracted to you. When we accuse, when we condemn, when we push people back, they tend, we're pushing them away with our words. But when we actually speak to them in ways that build them up, we're drawing people back in relationship to us. Fourthly is to give without expecting it back. Now, I'll give you this. I'll give you one inch in this relationship if you give me a mile. I'll give you two inches if you give me, you know, whatever else. It's to just give freely. Jesus said in John chapter 10, freely give. You've received freely. Just give without expecting anything back. Fifthly, and this is a really key one in all of our relationships, is to pray without ceasing. We think about praying in church, maybe a prayer closet or a prayer ministry or a prayer group, but this is the kind of praying we should do those things. I'm talking about the praying while you're talking to somebody, to have God in mind, in your mind, and be asking him quietly, Lord, how should I respond? Guide me by your Holy Spirit. Give me the, the right words to say here. How should I word this? What should I show is to allow the Holy Spirit, who's the ultimate healer and reconciler, is to guide you. What you'll see happen as you do that is the Holy Spirit will always prompt you in the way of the Lord. He'll always prompt you to forgive because that's who he is. He'll say, this is my way, walk in this. Very important that we talk to God, we pray first and speak second. Sixthly is to share without pretending. That's one way of saying what Ephesians says also, is to speak the truth in love. To think about before you speak something truthful about something. So, like, if my hair is not messed up, if I'm having a bad hair day with that wind yesterday, I had a really bad hair day. Any of you have the same problem out there? It's a bad problem with the cold wind. That's what more was. Is before you say something, is to think through how is the other person going to feel when I say this. How are they going to react? How is it going to impact them? And always then speak words that will be an expression of love, even when you're telling them something you know they need to hear to do it in a way that they will be better able to receive it. This is effective communication that will help open up channels that may have been blocked. Because a lot of times relationship conversations that are challenged or difficult go down paths. There's triggers, we go back and forth, and we end up in the same exact place. If we reverse some of these things, we'll start opening up some channels of communication, maybe with people we haven't spoken to for days or weeks or even years. Seventh is to enjoy without complaining. The Bible says God's given us all good things to enjoy. People were meant for enjoyment. We're meant, we were created for his pleasure, is when something good happens in your relationship with somebody. Enjoy it. Thank God for it. Pray together and give thanks for it instead of immediately turning to the the negative. Well, this won't last, or this is going to mess up again, is to go the other direction and to say, God, thank you for helping us resolve this situation. You know, some people are glass half-full, some are glass half-empty, and then there's some that are all the way full and some that are all the way empty. I'm not sure where you classify yourself, but if you're dealing with a person that's on the glasses completely empty end of the spectrum, complaining and grumbling is only going to add fuel to that. And we want to be careful how we, we do that in conversation. The eighth thing is to answer someone without arguing. This is so hard. When someone's challenging you, on a point that you're pretty well versed in and you kind of have a good handle on is to answer without arguing. The Bible says to, as much as it's within your power, be at peace with all people, which means sometimes just keep your mouth closed and say, I'm not going to change their opinion on this. I've tried a lot of times, and it's just not going to happen. And I'm at peace with the fact that I don't have to change their opinion or their perspective on this subject. As much as you want to, you're not going to do it. The last two are very key and anchor the whole thing. Forgive without punishing. Colossians, we read that passage and it says so many times is to forgive each other as Christ has forgiven us is to forgive, to forget, and here's the key part of it. Never bring it up again. Why do things get brought up a week later, a month later, a year later, or 10 or 40 years later? Okay? We're still punishing the person for whatever it was. We just haven't got it settled is to be settled because God says, I've taken your sins away from you as far as the east is from the west. Poof, they're gone. He does, has no record of wrongdoing that he's forgiven for you. Isn't that good news? When the judgment day comes, and it's coming, under the blood of Christ, he has no memory of our sins. They've been covered by the blood of Christ. And he asks us to forgive people the same way. Blanket forgiveness. And never bring it up again. Last but not least is to learn to love without limits. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, do unto others as you'd want them done to you, the golden rule, as we call it. Well, yeah, that's okay. I can get that. But then John chapter 13, 14, 15, Jesus, his final conversation with his disciples, ratcheted up a few notches. He said, I want you now, a new commandment, to love each other the way I'm loving you. This is agape love, unconditional love. And they're like, uh, we're just kind of working on that loving one another as you know, they love us and that, that doing unto others thing. We're still working on that. He says, come on, I'm going to take you up to my level so that you can be much more like me. It exceeds the golden rule. Steve Marboli said it this way, I find the best way to love someone is not to change them, but instead to help them reveal the best version of themselves. I believe, friends, as we put these things into practice that we're going to see the storge love restore marriages restore families, households, reconcile relationships, even restore communities. But I understand also that a day like today, there may be some here who are in the midst of one of those very, very difficult, complicated, tricky relationships that you've tried and tried and tried everything you know how to do to make it right, and you're feeling helpless and hopeless. You just, or you know a family member, there's countless people I hear all the time, well, they haven't done this, haven't done that, I'm standing here, friends, sharing these words because I'm a person that believes in relational miracles. I believe God heals all kinds of things. I see it happens countless times in couples that come for pastoral counsel and marriage things. I watch God work in those situations. But I've seen the ultimate miracle in my own household, not my my current household, but the family I grew up in. My mother and my sister, let's preface it by saying, went 18 years, 18 solid years, without saying a word to each other living in the same area, being involved in all the same family activities during that 18 years. There were children being born, baptized, and other aspects of marriages and Christmas gatherings. And of course, my wife and I, being the social hospitality, were inviting everybody over, all the family, and they wouldn't say a word to each other. It was a Cold War of mammoth proportions. You see, just a little background here. My mother was... A kind of the top of her class in high school and went to University of Chicago, received a degree there, you know, lightweight school like that, and was really, you know, editor of her school paper, that kind of thing. My my sister was a flower child of the 60s. Okay, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. So this was set up all through my growing up years watching this dynamic. There was kind of an oil and water thing going on. My my sister liked dating guys. No offense to guys that have tattoos, but big tattoos and motorcycles. Okay, That wasn't what my mom was hoping for, I guess. Something like that. She actually married uh, a wonderful guy. Um, sad to say they're both deceased now, but he had a tattoo with a devil on his big, on his bicep here. It said, born to raise hell. Okay, that was kind of, kind of the tension point going there. But something happened uh, when my nephew was born, my sister's first child was born shortly after that, they had some, whatever happened there, it mushroom-clouded, and for 18 solid years, they didn't talk to each other. Okay? One little tidbit that'll give you perspective, my sister didn't want to go to college, but my parents made her take the ACT test, you gotta take the college entrance, so she took the test, she never opened the question book. She just filled in all the things on the the form without even looking. And unfortunately for her, she got a 60 percentile, whatever that was on an ACT, so she could get into college anyway. So not recommending that to to get in, but that shows how how good those tests are. But after 18 solid years of my brother and I especially praying for their healing and trying, we loved both of them trying to help them. We couldn't do it. There was a miracle. They both came to the realization that they wanted a relationship with each other. And the last 10 years of their lives, they had a wonderful mother-daughter relationship that even marvel we marveled at it, believing and praying all these 18 years for something to happen. We couldn't believe it. They're getting along. It's like, like there's nothing ever happened. That's the power of this drive of Astorge love that God put inside of us. It. it is that strong. It's what God wanted, and he helped them find that.